Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I'm your host, uh, Stephen Pinecker, and I just want to thank my audience. You know, just before we get started, uh, you know, I mentioned this the other day in my other interview. I'm this close, this close to getting the channel monetized. Um, I actually, for hours, watched them three times over what uh, YouTube requires. And uh, I'm very close to getting it monetized based on subscribers. So if you're a frequent viewer and you're not subscribed to me, um, please consider subscribing and also if you don't have a youtube account it takes two seconds it's free and then uh you can then sign up and and do that and that would be really helpful because only about 10 percent of youtube channels gets monetized so either way very excited to have this guest on um so you know everybody knows i'm one of those people who's not afraid to go into the weeds and explore uh, different aspects <laughs> of the restoration and i came across their your pure mormonism blog probably about 10 years ago and I found you to be a very interesting and engaging fellow who was an original thinker. And uh, so I'm just really excited, folks, to have Rock Waterman. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. An original thinker. My goodness. Uh, flattered. <laughs> so we were actually having a little issue and we we were <laughs> we were taping and then all of a sudden I lost my Internet and that doesn't normally happen. So uh, but one of the things actually, uh, you know, I kind of you brought it off the subject. I think this is a great place to start is you were mentioning to me about your Jewish background. Yes. And, and, and so maybe just talk about your story about finding out that you were Jewish, the background. And then we can also talk a little bit about this, uh, the stick of Joseph uh, in the hand of Ephraim, yes, uh, of who your friend Adrian uh, Larson helped produce. Well, when we're, uh, yeah, and I really, uh, really liked that interview with Adrian. I had the opportunity to meet the Messianic Jew who was instrumental in the, uh, here, here's my, my copy. I've got the got the smooth lamb skin. There it is. Um, I love this. This is the only only edition of the Book of Mormon I care about anymore. It's the only only one I bother to read. I uh, got my own hair in my mouth. <laughs> I yeah yeah. Uh, it's you're considered Jewish if your mother's Jewish, and uh, my mother is Jewish. She didn't know it. I don't think her mother knew it either. Her mother came over to America went, with her family when she was five. Their name was Reichert which I was always told was a German name, but apparently they are, they were Prussian Jews who left, uh, they left Prussia. Uh, I think there was a pogrom on at the time they came in through Ellis Island. So grandma was five years old at the time. She grew up, she, uh, and nobody knew that they were Jewish. In fact, my, uh, I have an uncle Otto. They look Jewish. If you saw a picture of my, my grandmother and her children, they're all grown and everybody's wearing glasses and they got the big nose here like me. And uh, they, uh, anyway, Uncle Otto was trying to uh, get a room at a motel and they wouldn't serve him because they said, we don't take Jews here. And he says, I'm not a Jew. He was highly insulted because they thought they were, <laughs> they thought they were German. But anyway, my mother and my aunt Rose are the genealogists in the family, and they not only learned that we had, uh, the way they put it, looks like there was a, a Jew in the woodpile somewhere, and that was a term, a racist term that, you know, is used for, in a, another manner, mm -hmm. uh, but, um, um, yeah, and they found out that the name Reichert was not German at all. It's uh, it's Jewish. There was a famous rabbi named Irving Reichert, I think, and another fellow who had something to do with with uh, not not inventing the sewing machine, but doing uh, improvements on it. So we have some famous famous Reicherts in our background. But I'm Jewish, so um, 
I, I didn't know it, but when I was in high school, I was just attracted to the, the kids at the neighboring high school. I went to Anaheim High School and Loera High was our neighboring high school. And I fell in with the Jewish kids there. These were all kids who had well-to-do families, you know, uh, father owned clothing stores. And, you know, the, the, your typical, they were reformed Jews, which meant, I'm not sure what it meant, but they weren't orthodox. So I went to temple with them several times because there was a nice feast at the end, uh, you know, a, a table laid out with food. And so I enjoyed hanging out with them, dated Jewish girls for a while, tried to convert them, of course, because that was my job, but boy, they wouldn't have anything uh, to do with it. Uh, my one girlfriend, Sue Shankman, got really offended at one point because our religion is 4,000 years old and she said, and yours is 145 years old. And so anyway, there's no talking to her. And that was kind of the end of our relationship. But that's where I learned that uh, I was dating Kara Lee. I learned that it took her to Carl's Jr., which is, I don't know, there's not Carl's Jr.'s all across the nation. but well, Hardy's, oh, it's Hardy's in this part. Oh, it's Hardy's and Carl's Jr., that's right. Yeah. So anyway, took her to Carl's, uh, Carl's Jr. Uh, at the time, they had the best roast beef sandwiches they don't do roast beef sandwiches anymore but they still do the famous star which is a, a cheeseburger and uh she wouldn't eat a cheese a cheeseburger because you can't eat milk with uh mm -hmm. with meat at the same time so anyway learned all those things uh uh anyway yeah. i guess the point i'm getting at is this edition of the book of mormon it just i think it's in my blood it just is it's, I I wept when I saw my first copy of it. It was a hardback like yours, and I was reading the introduction, and I just started weeping. It was like I come home. Hmm. So uh, this was to go out to the Jew and the Gentile. I finally got this Jew, and uh, I love it. Wow. Hey, I, I I should put a plug in for another. There's two editions of the Book of Mormon. One day I intended to do a blog post about my favorite issues of the Book of Mormon. And I have talked about some. Uh, um, Damon Smith did a wonderful um, um, reader's edition, as did Grant Hardy. Anyway, this is the annotated Book of Mormon. Yeah. And this is put out by uh, uh, the group Ron Meldrum and Wayne May and those guys who are very big on the, uh, the uh, Homeland model. Have you interviewed either of those? Yeah, so I've had, I've actually, I actually have that edition of the Book of Mormon. Boyd Tuttle, oh. the publisher, gave me, hand, handed me a copy of that when I was in Utah last time. And I've had Rod Meldramon and Jonathan Neville, who's one of the editors as well. And uh, so I, it's a beautifully pictures. illustrated. Yeah. Yeah. Got great pictures. It's a pretty hefty, uh, hefty price. I think it's about $65. But I was able to get it with the help of a friend. And uh, it's, it's wonderful. And this is, you know, this is where you learn that, yes, there were horses in the Book of Mormon. And, uh, you know, anybody who still questions that are just listening to old, old information. Because all you have to do is Google horses before Columbus. And you'll see there's a woman. She's an Indian woman. I can't recall what tribe. She raises that breed of horses. And they have their thicker, kind of thicker heads and, and very long manes. And if you just... Uh, Google that, you'll find plenty of uh, National Geographic did a piece. That, and I think one of the reasons, if I understand correctly, why the story got out that there were no horses in the Book of Mormon or, you know, in America before Columbus was simply that one of the early explorers said something to that effect. And everybody's carried that with them and assumed that that was true. 
And of course, that was uh, among the conquistadors in South America. And for all I know, there were no horses in South America. But one of the things that uh, the Indians did, they also ate horses when, uh, I guess, when they got too old to, to use as, uh, to ride and use pack animals. And so there aren't, you don't find a lot of full horse skeletons around, you know. Hmm. And of course, as you, you may know, any skeleton, any body corpse left out in the elements doesn't decompose to a skeleton. The skeleton itself also decomposes. If you bury, if you bury a body, you can dig it up centuries later and find a skeleton. But if it's left out in the elements, it turns to dust and blows away, sinks into the earth. So that's why we don't find horses and also why we didn't find skeletons uh, around the Hill Camorra. The, the, the evidence is there, plenty of it. They're, they're, uh, the farmers in that area report having to you know, pick up wheelbarrows full of spearheads and arrowheads before they could plow. But you don't see uh, evidence of skeletons, but the, the soil is rich in lime. Okay, I've rambled long enough. You got a question for me? Well, this is the thing. So this is what I told people, I told you. I said, we're going to have a kind of a stream of consciousness conversation in which we just kind of talk about topics. I have a few things written down I want to talk about. And maybe let's just go back to the beginning. Tell me a little bit about your childhood and your, your uh, faith journey, where you served your mission, stuff like that. Okay, ask me what my favorite movie is. That ties into my childhood. Oh, okay. What's your favorite movie? <laughs> my favorite movie is The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And I just subjected my wife to it for the umpteenth time just the other night. My been my favorite movie. And I was pondering, reflecting on why in the world is that my favorite movie? Because of course, I love all the standards, The Wizard of Oz and you name it. But I think it's because that was the first movie that affected me emotionally. Hmm. It was one of those movies that at the end, you sit there unable to move like, like it is at the end of, if you remember the first time you viewed uh, Braveheart, you know, you just sit there and you're unable to move. But anyway, this story, and I won't get, go into the plot because, you know, it's <laughs> it made in 1960, 61, and mm -hmm. I don't want to ruin it for the younger kids who haven't seen it. <laughs> but after I got up, I, uh, I walked up the aisle, I was watching it with Junior Pina, my next door neighbor and I guess my brother Carl was there also. So walking up to the theater and at the very last row of seats at the end was Kathy Zuber and Nancy Goldsmith who I had a crush on. Did I mention I'm 12 years old? And uh, I had to quick pull it together because you know, I didn't wanna look like I was on the verge of tears. But that was in Hawaii on the Marine Corps Air Base in Kaneohe where, uh, okay, so I'll back up. I was born in Oceanside, which was actually Camp Pendleton, California. My father was a Marine, and I was 10 months in the womb, and uh, apparently I was just stubborn, didn't want to come out, didn't, didn't want to see the world. And then we lived in Anaheim for most of my childhood up to third grade. There was a year or so, about age five, when we dad was stationed in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, and then we came back to our home in Anaheim. And then at the end of third grade, dad was transferred to Oahu. So we all moved there and that was a lovely time. And that was the best. That was my favorite growing up years. You know, hmm. that's when, that's when I discovered comic books and that's when I discovered, you know, 
this movie theater was a complex. Oh, and the wonderful thing about living on a Marine base, it's like a little village where it's completely safe. You don't worry about, you know, crime or, you know, getting kidnapped or, and so we would just go off on our bikes. So there was this complex where the, it had a barber shop and the public library and the movie theater and, uh, and the PX was all in that area. Movies were 15 cents. So that's where I saw Men Who Shot Liberty Valance. Also where I saw uh, David and Goliath, all the biblical epics. Um, and of course, all the Jerry Lewis movies at the time. And uh, I was, oh my gosh, Jerry Lewis was the living end to me. And I was always doing pratfalls in front of the girls to get laughs. <laughs> and I watched Jerry Lewis today and I'm embarrassed for him. <laughs> because <laughs> he's a uh, well i was watching cinderfella mm -hmm. uh, trying to get through it with my wife and my grandson a couple of weeks ago and he just he doesn't know when to when to end a bit you know he'll just go on and on and on anyway <laughs> jerry, lewis. jerry lewis and red skelton were my early influences okay wow this is great so uh you know that reminds me of uh, just since we're talking about biblical, biblical epics and movies you know a lot of people don't realize that um arnold freiberg was a consultant for the ten commandments yeah and uh cecil b demille was so impressed with uh so the aesthetic and the look of the ten commandments movie is really uh inspired by arnold freiberg uh, so it has that just that majestic look to it. It's very, uh, in, it's just, you know, we all know the imagery is very stunning. And of course, we also have the imagery from the Book of Mormon, but he kind of, uh, you know, set the, the standard for that kind of movie. And Cecil B. DeMille, who actually ended up meeting David O. McKay as a result of this and everything like that, actually wanted to make a Book of Mormon movie. Did you know that? I did not know that. Can you imagine if, if he actually made oh, one? What, if what he had done happened? it, it would have finally been great. Yeah. Would have been a masterpiece. One of the problems with that is it's just so sweeping that, you know, now in the, these days you can make a 10 or, or 20 part miniseries out of it if somebody was willing to finance it. Yeah. Heck, we, so, got, we got it. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just, I just think it's so interesting that I always think like, is there an alternative universe where that movie was made? And then, then I grew up maybe becoming a Mormon as a result, or people people became. <laughs> yeah, I have I have this booklet with uh, from the Ten Commandments with with all the art that uh, Freeberg did. I found that at Larry Edmonds Bookshop, and people, movie buffs, I don't know if it still exists, but on Hollywood Boulevard, um, Larry Edmonds Bookshop is where you went for all the books about film posters all kinds of things so that was a great find for me it was kind of expensive but uh, i was you know 20 years old at the time and i haunted that place i remember uh harpo mark's autobiography harpo speaks i bought it on my mission in paperback and i found it there at larry edmund's bookshop it was under the glass case and uh you know, nice hard co cover copy but it was so rare that they were asking $45 for it, which was a massive amount. You know, the average book back then cost maybe $3.95 to $4.95, but 45 bucks, I wanted that desperately, but never got it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Wonder what it costs today. So just uh, since we're talking about your background, your childhood, and also that you went on the mission, can we talk about, about your faith? So as a young child, what role did Mormonism play in your life? Oh, I was, I've, 
born in the church, grew up in the church and loved it. I didn't care much for the meetings, but I loved being a Mormon. I loved I, really what I liked is MIA. By the time I was a teenager, you know, MIA and the scouts and the girls, basically, and road shows, really big on road shows. Uh, that was where I came out of my shell. I was kind of a shy, introverted, gangly teenager. And uh, we did a we did a road show uh, that was uh, based on the Music Man. I don't know if you know what a road show is. I don't well, know if I, many people. I hear people talk about the nostalgia, a lot of nostalgia for that. Yeah, yeah the, the, the stake would put, every ward would put on, it was basically the teenagers putting on a, a 15 minute show and we'd show it for each other. And then, uh, and, and then that night, all the adults and families would come also to see the road show. So they were usually spoofs of something or they, you know, so, so in, our, in our case, uh, we did a, a spoof of the of the the Music Man, which we which was called the Dancing Man. It was basically all about how uh, this community where nobody was allowed to dance um, because it was very much like very much like Dirty Dancing, I guess. Uh, and so so this guy comes through town, and I played um, what's his name, Aloysius, the Buddy Hackett character. Huh? You know, it's one of my favorite musicals. I should be able to remember, but <laughs> I don't. Um, I can't remember anybody's names now. And, you know, Lewis Black did a, a bit on this in his 50s. He says, something happens when you turn 50, you can't remember the names of, of famous people anymore. And he's so right, you know. You, you'll say, uh, you know, that, that guy, the guy that was in that movie, you know, the movie where they did that thing? So anyway, the music, so the dancing man. So it was a hit. I mean, it was the best one and everybody knew it and everybody cheered and we all knew we had done great but um we came in last place because one of the judges now what they do for the judges they just pick mia advisors or teachers or faculty or whatever to be the judges of the road shows and she gave ours a zero for originality you count from one to 100 is how how the counting went she gave it a zero for originality because it was based on another musical and so she didn't get it you know mm -hmm. so so we lost that but and my whole point was I, I got some laughs I don't remember what I did and it was like it opened up a whole new world for me I was going to be an actor and from that time on that was my whole focus you know I was I was a theater student and I majored in musical theater in college and uh uh, with a minor in film studies. And what I didn't realize at the time, everybody wants to be a famous actor. <laughs> so, but I, I, I kind of thought it was an original thought. So uh, eventually I, I came across a book, I think it was by Mervyn Leroy. Well, Mervyn Leroy wrote something called It Takes More Than Talent. It's a book for budding actors, but I think it was somebody else. But this other person, this was more recent you know, in the 70s. And he pointed out that at any time, 92% of all actors, SAG hard caring actors were out of work for at least a year. And I thought, oh my gosh, because I thought all I had to do was get one part and that would lead to another part and another part. And that caused me to, to uh, as I'm watching TV, I remember specifically watching an episode of um, the streets of San Francisco and noticing a guy the guy goes into a store and the guy who runs the store, he's an actor, nothing happens. You know, somebody buys something. 
you never see that actor again. And all, all these bit players, I'm thinking these guys worked hard and struggled hard to get there. And I'm thinking all I have to do is walk into it. Anyway, I, I wanted a career in show business, so I settled for Disneyland. So, so worked there for a while. Oh, you worked it. Okay. You know, this is what's so interesting. When I did my hundredth episode special a few weeks ago, um, I with Rick Bennett and Christopher Thomas, I had mentioned how I watched a lot of gospel tangents and Mormon stories and other programs. And I was so fascinated how, and I specifically brought this up, how comic books, Disney, and musicals are so central to Mormons. And that even they they reference them in regular conversation. It's like, it's like, it's a real touchstone, those three things. And, and it's just interesting to me that those three things are also very important to you. Yeah, well, musicals are really big, but uh, yeah, comic books, that was the era, uh, you know, from 1961. I don't think I even knew about comic books until I got to Hawaii. The first thing we did, we, we stayed in the motel for a week while dad, you know, went off to the base to work. This was in Honolulu. And then we rented a house in Lanakai until housing was available on the base for us. And the people who had lived there, they had a couple of kids who left behind these baskets of comic books and my sister Elsa and I were just that's all we did we spent our time devouring those and that's mostly they were DC and romance comics and so that's where I got my affinity for DC comics and uh well you know I was the big Superman fan from the time I was a child I got a Superman suit for for a Christmas uh, that's what I called it, a Superman I was five years old and didn't, didn't know the word costume that was too big a word but I honestly thought that once I put on that suit, I was going to be able to fly. And I wasn't. So. <laughs> but I had, a, I had a pair of my own red boots already because it didn't come with boots. It comes with, you know, it's painted on leggings, the red leggings. Hey, you want to know one of my deepest secrets that nobody knows? Sure. I wear girly socks around the house. <laughs> <laughs> now i'd love to have some more masculine i gotta i love these these are these cushy socks um i'd love to have something more masculine but um they don't make masculine colors at, at uh, the dollar store so you know i've got maybe a dozen pairs of these different different designs in pink so this is great. I'm really enjoying this. I uh no, I no find... that's that's the secret just between you and I. Okay, I won't tell anybody. It's, it's just okay. between you and I. That's right. So um, you know, I you know, I was followed your uh pure Mormonism blog, and it just seems like you've had an interesting story. And obviously, folks, you can tell, you know, Rock's had an interesting life, interesting story that he's telling. We're giving you some background. And I told him, so let's just chat and and have just talk about different things. And uh, so I, I just want to kind of talk a little bit about your trans, um, you served a mission. And, and when you served a mission, uh, did you baptize anybody? What was, what, what did you, yeah. tell me a little bit about that. Well, it, I was, it was the Missouri Independence Mission at the time. And actually oh, wow. at the time I went out, it was the Kansas Missouri Mission. They, so they called it, took, took in that whole swath. And then they started, uh, they started naming them after the state and then the, the town where the mission headquarters is. So this was Missouri Independent. So I, I'd already done a musical. Um, it was really a, a, a big budget musical that my stake had produced. I played Porter Rockwell. Hmm. And uh, it, I, so I, that, that, uh, that gave me a, an interest in Mormon history. This, actually, I wasn't interested in anything about Mormon history before Missouri. So hmm. in Nauvoo, actually it took place in Nauvoo. Right. So, uh, 
So I wasn't interested in uh, Kirtland, didn't know anything about it, but boy, so now I'm now I'm in that territory and it was wonderful. So of course I went to the uh, the, the temple lot across the street. I, I was in and out of uh, the mission home a few times during that time, but uh, oh gosh, where else? Oh, Liberty Jail. My companion and I spent the night there. It's an interesting place because it really is not very tall. It's maybe five feet tall uh, to the ceiling. So you had to hunch over the whole time. And uh, I also did a, a, I did a, a, another musical. This one was written by Orson Scott Card and it was called Liberty Jail. And so uh, I got a feel, a feel at the time for what it was like for those poor guys to, to hunch over. Now, of course, on the stage production, it wasn't, there was no ceiling, but you just couldn't walk around in that. One night in that place was all we could take because just, you know, just to hunch over, it was easier to crawl from place to place. But anyway, Liberty Jail, I didn't see uh, far west until my parents came out to pick me up. My dad had uh, just retired. He was a real estate mogul in Anaheim and he'd finally retired and got his dream. It was the most expensive motorhome at the time. It even had a fireplace in it, fake fireplace, of course. But they had pulled that out and yeah, made room for other stuff. But they came and picked me up from my mission and we kind of toward the United States. My parents wanted, to do, my mom wanted to do genealogy. So we went to Tennessee and, uh, you know, genealogy on, I guess, her father's side. But the point is, I, uh, um, we, we drove as far as we could to far west. It was really just, it was getting to be a narrow dirt road in the forest. Looks like there wasn't going to be any way to turn around. Then we came to a bridge before we could get to too far west and it just looked too rickety so i never really saw far west but here's the the key point we were close enough to nauvoo to see it from across the river when we were in montrose iowa i guess it was montrose i'm thinking my memory is hazy but we could stand on the banks of the mississippi river and we could see nauvoo from there but we weren't allowed to go over there because it was out of our mission and we would have easily been caught because that's I don't know what Nauvoo is today, but it was a, essentially a mission headquarters and the missionaries give the tours and everything. We would have been spotted in a minute. Um, but uh, if I'd had it to do again, I looked back and I thought, you know what? I should have gone. If they want to send me home for going to Nauvoo, send me home. But anybody who served a mission knows that the biggest disgrace that you, know, that you can face mm -hmm. is to be sent home. So uh, there were a couple of guys who drove home and uh, went to general conference and uh, the camera this is the, according to the story the camera is panning the congregation and they get spotted and uh, when they came back the mission president sends them home for going to for going to general conference so you know i don't know if that story is true or not but with that that kind of stuff kept us in line so, so i liked i liked missouri but yeah uh, 12 baptisms when you count all the kids uh, between my companion and I, you know, different companions, but it was a tough area. It's like Germany. No, you, it's notorious. Missouri, you just can't get baptisms. Well, and I would, <clears throat> let me interject something here too. That was my big failing as a, uh, now, by the way, it took in, it took in uh, half of Iowa, some of, most of half of Nebraska. It was a big mission. Um, oh, I, I got to spend a lot of time in Hannibal, which is, uh, mm -hmm. there, there was a, 
<clears throat> just across the street from um, Mark Twain's boyhood home is the Becky Thatcher bookshop. And they were clearing out these books for $1.49 each, some nice leather bound, the complete works of, I, I couldn't afford very many, but I, in fact, I could only afford uh, two. And one of them is Mark Twain's um, Joan of Arc, which he considers his favorite. Uh, he felt that that was his favorite and most important work. I've read everything else he's done, all the short stories. My two favorites are, are uh, uh, the Prince and the Pauper and Connecticut Yankee. And of course I've read um, Huckleberry Finn more than seven or eight times. But the interesting thing is I've never read, I've never read Mark Twain's favorite book. So hmm. one day, maybe. Well, <laughs> uh, where copy? was I going with this? Where was well, I you going? You still have that copy this? of that? Uh, oh yeah, book? yeah. It's, it's in storage like a lot of, we got a storage unit where most of my books are. Oh, wow. Uh, so I'm really curious because you said you, you, you covered the independence area. So did you have interactions? Like you said, you visited the temple lot. Did you have interactions with RLDS, Temple Lot folks, and some of the other uh, breakoffs? <laughs> well, we took the we took the tour. They they gave a tour of uh, <coughs> it's just across the street from the mission home. They gave give a tour of the uh, you know church headquarters. This was before they had built that temple there. What struck me the most was the tour guide was a young woman wearing a miniskirt which you know would not have been church standards in our church but i thought i'm you know i just tisk you know but you know we had this era, era of superiority over these poor fools who they, they didn't have the truth you know they just and of course i have a completely different view now i've, I've read many of uh, the writings of uh, joseph smith the third and uh they're better than anything any of our church leaders have put out but anyway, oh yeah, the point I wanted to make was the, my failing was I was taught that what we were out there to do was get baptisms. That was where all the focus was. And, you know, you, you reported every week, you, you listed the numbers of Books of Mormon placed, how many pamphlets did you place, how many baptisms, it was usually zero. <clears throat> when we would come across some, um, some good evangelical, evangelical Christians, people really loved the Lord and they were very welcoming to us. Because of course they wanted to change our minds and we wanted to change their minds. When we'd come across them and it, by the second or third discussion, when it was clear we weren't gonna, they weren't, they weren't gonna be baptized, we would dump them. That was missionary vernacular. I don't know if it still is, but basically this is when, when you're not getting anywhere with somebody or they're, or, or they're just flakes. You say, oh, let's dump them. And so you spend all your time tracting, looking for more. Uh, I wish I had just enjoyed the company of people who knew Christ better than I did. I mean, I was out there to convert people to the church. Of course, if you'd asked me, you know, if you'd accused me of that the, the, this church is, uh, doesn't worship Christ, I would have lashed back. And I would have, especially the 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 uh, the claim that we're a cult. Um, well, today I believe the church is a cult because the church, yes, you know, we will always point to the name of the church, the church of Jesus Christ. Yeah, of course we're Christian. But today, more than anything, now this wasn't true in my day, but today more than anything, prime doctrine is to follow the prophet. That's the very definition of a cult. When you, when you look to one person or a group of people as as 
your leaders and you follow them. That's a cult. Now we weren't, a, I wasn't a cultist. Now I, I, uh, I did worship Christ, but I didn't know Jesus as well as some of these, uh, you know, in those days, this was 73 to 75. So in those days they were known as Jesus freaks, you know, you try to have a prayer with them, you know, and they would just keep saying, just, yes, amen, just, and it would be annoying, (laughs) but, but uh, gosh, anyway, since then, of course, I've attended many uh, Christian churches in the spirit the spirit is not in our meetings at all. Anybody attending knows that, you know, but if you go to one of these, and I'm not talking about the big, big mega churches, although who knows, but I've gone to Christian churches where they sing and they've got a band and, and, you know, I love to, I love to sing and pray with, with our arms to, to the sky to this day, uh, Connie and I pray in the open handed position because we want the spirit to come into it. we mormons are taught to pray, bow our heads fold our arms we're basically shutting the spirit out so anyway i'm different now uh, but of course uh, i i should probably say this for all those viewers who don't know me i am a mormon i'm not a member of the church of jesus christ Latter-day saints because they booted me out because i'm too much of a mormon for them <laughs> But by Mormon, what I'm saying is if you're if you believe in the Book of Mormon and embrace the Book of Mormon, you're you're a Mormon. And I I uh, I believe that Joseph Smith was a divinely inspired prophet, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenant. So the scriptures and I and I, I follow the admonition of uh, Harold B. Lee, where he said, if only the members would learn to get their answers from the scriptures. And he goes on for two paragraphs. And this was published originally in, um, I think in 75 in the Ensign. He says, if we only learn to, to get our answers from the scriptures. And, but so what he was essentially saying was this idea that was starting to come out, follow the brethren. That wasn't, so yeah, it's like, I'll tell you why it's a cult. Because we don't, we will put, well, let's look at what uh, uh, Russell Nelson recently said. They came out with a statement of the first presidency where he, he encouraged members to get the vaccine shot. And he said they have been proven safe and effective. That's a flat out lie. That's a flat out lie. They're not, if they'd been proven safe and effective, they would have been gotten authorization from the FDA. They are for emergency use only. And of course, the, the media and the government has picked up on it because they want everybody vaccinated. But this was a statement of the first presidency. And I heard people on a radio show who said, uh, this was out of Salt Lake City. A friend sent me a recording of a three-hour show. The, uh, it's a talk show. And the, the host is not a member of the church. But he said, I'd like to hear from you Mormons out there who, uh, what you think, uh, of, uh, of the leader of your church saying that you should get the vaccines. And callers would call in and say, well, I wasn't gonna do it. I wasn't gonna do it because I followed the science. And here's the point, if you follow the science, you know that's a bad idea. But they say, I've followed the science I, I, and I, I knew that it was uh, a dangerous thing, but now that the prophet said we should do it, I'm gonna go ahead and do it. 
I mean, caller after caller did that, except for my friend Monica, who was the last caller of all, and she just lambasted everybody for that attitude. But this is the thing, and I've written a, you know, I might, I just might uh, readdress this issue. Russell Nelson, when Russell Nelson was, okay, I gotta say this, and I know you're not about bad-mouthing anybody, but again, I will, I will uh, preface this by saying I'm a faithful believer. I'm more devout in the gospel than I've ever been in my life, ever since they kicked me out of the church. They excommunicated me essentially because I, well, they gave me an ultimatum. Uh, my bishop called me and he said, Rock, I don't, I don't even want to be the one to tell you this, but we got an ultimatum. The Area 70 told the stake president, that, and the state president told me that I have to take you that you have to either stop blogging or resign from the church or will they hold a court of excommunication? I said, well, I'm not going to resign. And he says, well, and I'm not going to stop blogging. He says, well, so, so I went in, I, I called up the state president. I said, I want to talk to him because there is a, in the church handbook of instructions, bishops and state presidents are, are instructed as to what constitutes apostasy. And there's a couple of things, but the main thing is if a, if a member persists in teaching false doctrine after being repeatedly corrected by his priesthood leaders, then that's grounds for excommunication for apostasy. So I, I made a point with the state president. So I said, I heard you've been given this ultimatum. So, you know, Tell me what you think I've done wrong. If there's anything doctrinally or historically an error, I'll go in and change it. You know, you can change your blog post anytime. You can make corrections. And he says, well, I haven't read it. And he says, and we had a chat. And uh, at the end, I said, so what happens from here? And he says, well, I'm not in any hurry to excommunicate anybody. A few months later, I get a letter that uh, my hearing is being held that Friday. I think this was a Monday. And uh, that Friday, a hearing would be held. And... Uh, I'd never been brought in for correction. So anyway, they excommunicated me for apostasy under that section of the, uh, of the uh, church handbook of instruction, which they put before the scriptures, believe me. In fact, they've been told to. I, I saw a great clip from uh, Thomas Monson where he was, it was, uh, he was, they made a little, 10 or 15 minute video about the importance of the church handbook of instruction. And he holds it, holds it up and he, and he bears testimony of it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. He bore testimony of, I'm holding up the scriptures. That's not what I should be doing. He's holding up the handbook of instruction and bearing testimony of something that's put together by church attorneys to protect the leaders from, you know, uh, anything that might cause them cause lawsuits against the church that's essentially what it is so anyway so this whole point about oh, by the way you can you can uh there are there are things that um, uh, i can't recall all of them you know if, if a member is accused of robbery or is sent to jail uh or for whatever and rape is one of them these are not grounds for excommunication then the next section is what are grounds for excommunication and uh, entering into a same-sex marriage is one ground, and uh, and persisting in teaching falsehoods after being repeatedly corrected by the priesthood leader. So anyway, I was never corrected by the priesthood leader. When I got to the hearing, same stake president is holding it. He's you know all the all members of the stake high council, all twelve of them are are present, 
And all they wanted to know was, do you sustain Thomas S. Monson as prophet, seer, and revelator? And the answer I, guess I gave was, I, I have no way of knowing because I haven't seen any evidence. I said, if, if Thomas Monson claims to have received a revelation, I'll be the first in line to see it. I'll read that revelation and then I'll pray about it. So I get a witness of the Holy Ghost that this did indeed come from the Lord. And then, then I can sustain him. But at, right now I got nothing to go on. And the question came up two more times from two other uh, members of the Stake High Council. So basically that was it. Uh, I couldn't sustain Thomas S. Monson, so I couldn't be a member of the church. Now you, you take that and you look back in the days of Joseph Smith and you ask yourself, do you think that people had to, had to uh, swear allegiance to Joseph Smith before they could be baptized? You know, Joseph, you didn't have to think of it. I mean, right now, today, the missionary lessons that before they could baptize somebody, you have to get interviewed. So let's say I'm a missionary and we got people and we've given them a baptism challenge and they're ready to go. We've given them all the, all the, uh, lessons they, we still have to the zone leader or the district leader still has to sit down with them and interview them he goes through a list of questions among them you know they, they, they can't smoke or drink anymore they had to give all that up that should not be a part of baptism whether a person is baptized or not they don't have to you know yeah it's a good idea but see what it's a good idea to live the health laws but i think the church put puts more emphasis on image so if, if we baptize somebody who's still a smoker, people say, hey, this guy smokes and he's a Mormon and they can't have that. Uh, so um, I know I'm wandering all over the place here, but. Well, that's fine. But and I think it's interesting just to tell your story in the way that you want to tell it. OK, and you might want to pull me back if I have well, a question or if I lost the thread. somewhere. Well, no, but I mean, I think what I'd like to talk about is what, what you know, obviously we, we talked about you being excommunicated. Tell me about you starting the Pure Mormonism blog. Tell okay. me about what led to doing it. Yeah, I think I was doing that for eight or nine years before I was excommunicated. Oh, well, let me just finish this story. So um, during the excommunication, um, again, the state president admitted he had not read the blog, but he said, I had somebody else read it to me, uh, or read, give me some portions. So he had a file. He had a file that was sent to him from Salt Lake City. He wasn't interested. He told me he wasn't interested. And so my bishop, nobody in my ward. Now, here's the thing about excommunication. When somebody is being tried for excommunication or disfellowshipment, the complaint has to come from a member of the congregation. Nobody in my ward had any idea. We had recently moved into that ward. Uh, we had moved into the ward about six months earlier. And uh, immediately we stopped going because Connie got really sick. Connie's disabled. And so I stayed home with her. So for five months, we didn't go. When I came back, we showed up for a few weeks. And that's when I noticed the absence of the spirit. Don't let me forget your question, by the way. Yeah. That's when I noticed, you know, if you're away from it for a while, I really, I, I'd known for a long time that I was attending church because I was supposed to, but I hadn't really realized that there's nothing to offer there. The lessons are the same year after year. Um, they don't divert from the manual. Everybody who gives a talk in church just reads a con somebody else's conference talk. At least when I was asked to give a talk in church, I gave a, an original talk. But you know, um, 
So that's when, you know, after an absence of five months, I looked around, I came back another week or two and it just wasn't working. And uh, so anyway, my point here was, we didn't, nobody knew us, nobody knew about my blog. My blog was really gaining attention among, you know, the Wasatch Front, but nobody where I lived. So nobody complained about me. It came from Salt Lake City. The, uh, the strengthening of the members committee, which at that time was headed by one Russell M. Nelson. You got to kick this guy out. And uh, not long after they kicked out Denver Snuffer, although he's probably, Denver Snuffer knows more about the scriptures and about Joseph Smith's writing and Joseph Smith's life than anybody on this earth. Um, He's just incredible. If I have a question, I can, and I can't find it in my books, uh, I'll go ask him about it. And he's, he did, by the way, got to plug this. You know, the, uh, the book of Abraham was controversial because it, all this evidence seemed to indicate that it was a fraud. Denver gave a talk, I guess an hour and a half, um, it's probably been about a year ago. And you can find it on YouTube uh, by Googling, the religion of the fathers. And he pushed that whole controversy to rest. I mean, suddenly now my eyes are open. I say, how can I have ever thought that there was a problem with the book of Abraham? But you gotta, you gotta see that talk and have it walked through. Okay, I forgot your question. Okay, so, um, and, and we'll get back to Denver maybe perhaps later on, but I, okay. I basically I just, I, the question was, you know, what led up to you? Like, what was it that made you decide to do the pure Mormonism blog? Oh. Yeah, well, blogs were were coming out there. I didn't know of any Mormon blogs. And as a matter of fact, there, there weren't very many uh, that I knew of. But what got me, okay, here's what, here's what opened my eyes. George Bush and Dick Cheney were, you know, there was all this, they were beating the war drums for, for war against Iraq. And, uh, and I'm thinking, so by now, I had read in DNC 98, um, what verse is it? Well, anyway, DNC 98, one of the first things, verse seven says, um, um, proclaim peace um, and, uh, and renounce war. We Mormons don't renounce war. I was a big hawk during the uh, Vietnam War. I was a teenager and uh, I was old enough, by the time I was old enough to get drafted, uh, my draft number came up you know, something like 350. So I wasn't going to have to go, but I had asthma anyway. It wouldn't be called, but I was, uh, yeah, that's how hypocritical I was. I was all for, for these other guys being drafted to go overseas and fight a war that, well, anyway, the, uh, everything in the Book of Mormon, all the war chapters in the Book of Mormon are about one thing, two things. Number one, we have an obligation to defend our homes, our lands, and our families from invaders. And number two, we are absolutely prohibited from taking the, the, the battle into the lands of our enemies. So we, if, we, if we cross the borders of another, another country, now we're the enemy. Now we're the bad guys. So that's what the Book of Mormon teaches in DNC 98, I want to say 30, 30, 32 and 33. It says, it, it says, my people are not to go up into battle against any nation, kindred, tongue, or people, unless I, the Lord, commanded it. Okay, so now we got Bush and Cheney. So now I'm a, now I'm a, a, a pacifist, I guess you can call me. I'm not a, 
not a pacifist in the pure sense of the word. I would defend my my family and my lands, but um, but I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna. I, I oppose foreign wars because they're immoral and uh, they're against our scriptures. Well, at this time, every Mormon I knew was, you know, all gung ho and following Bush and Cheney. And I, I remember this guy I admired a lot in the old in the, in the high priest quorum. He says, you know, we're I'm I'm sitting in that. Uh, in that meeting and uh he's and we're talking about this we're talking about the imminent invasion uh you know and one of the guys says i think we should just you know you've heard this we mm -hmm. should just lay the whole mid-east turn it into glass bomb yeah. it you know nuke it into glass get rid of all of them and and this other guy says you know i'll tell you how i see i see george bush and gordon b hinckley like this you know to him they were the same. Well, that's the way I saw. That's the way I saw um, uh, Richard Nixon. Oh my gosh! With people badmouth Richard Nixon. I'm, at this time, I'm a teenager. Uh, you badmouth Richard Nixon, it's like badmouthing the prophet of God. You know, you don't do that because, to me, the president of the United States was placed there somehow by divine appointment, as was. Uh, at, uh, Hoover, what's his name? The uh, FBI. J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover. I was completely, completely propagandized. In my day, the FBI were the champs. There was a television series called mm -hmm. the FBI. Hoover did an, an incredible job of uh, making sure that the FBI was only painted in the perfect light. And it was only until I was an adult. Oh, and in the church hearings. So there was a congressman by the name, a senator by the name of uh, Frank Church, mm -hmm. who was a senator from Idaho, Idaho. And he was, he was a Mormon. And he held these hearings that was exposing the wrongdoing of the CIA. And I'm thinking, what the hell are you doing? These are the good guys. You don't want to attack the CIA, but you know what we know now. When we talk about the deep state, we're talking about the corruption that comes from uh, from within, from, from secrecy. Okay, where was I? So, well, <laughs> what we're doing is is what caught, was the catalyst for you? Oh, the catalyst. Okay, yeah. so now, so now this this war is imminent. We're weeks away. It's going to happen. Church general conference is coming up. And Hinckley is the prophet, and I can't wait because Hinckley is really going to, you know, give him hellfire and damnation for this because the, the, the United States is way out of line going after a country. And why are we doing it? Well, one of the, one of the things that the, the government and the media were able to somehow confuse most Americans into thinking Saddam Hussein was the guy who had... Uh, led the attack on 9-11. No, that was, you know, um, oh, who's Osama, the other guy? Osama bin Laden. Yeah. Osama bin Laden. And by the way, I don't believe it was either of them, but um, so, okay, you want to focus on Osama bin Laden? And they did. The idea was to, they were going to go, initially, they were going to go into Afghanistan and get him. They knew where he was. Turns out this guy has been a CIA asset for years, ever since the, uh, ever since the um, Afghan Civil War. Yeah. yeah. And ever since Russia had, yeah. had uh, invaded, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Invaded Afghanistan. So he was a CIA asset and he had he had uh, a kidney failure. He was known to have been given uh, dialysis treatments in the military hospital. I think I want to say the hospital Tripoli. That's the one in Hawaii, but it may have been somewhere else. So 
so we're taking care of this guy, but we, we use him as the bad guy. <clears throat> now the neocons, they've been wanting war on, uh, on uh, Iraq for a long time. So this confusion builds up. And so most Americans are, yeah, let's get this guy, you know. We didn't have a bone to pick with Iraq. It's just that these guys wanted, wanted to uh, um, occupy. And I was saying, you know, within a year, this, you know, we were, so the, the idea was we were going to liberate the people of Iraq. And I was telling people, mark my words, within a year, this will be an occupation. They won't leave. It didn't take a year. It was within weeks that the people were rebelling against us. But, okay, so to get to the point here. So I can't wait for conference because Gordon B. Hinckley, the prophet of God, is really going to rain down fire and brimstone. And the talk he gave was nothing like I expected. The most wishy-washy thing. You can still find that thing. I think, he, he, I think it's called... Well, he gave two talks uh, within that frame of period, and one was called the one was called the times we live in. Oh, my phone, sorry. All right. Uh, I turn it back on to talk to you. Um, yeah, let me turn it back down. Yes, so ah, I don't get phone calls. Who cares? <laughs> It'll take me longer to figure out how to turn it down than it would <laughs> be worth. So, so he gives this wishy-washy talk, and he talks about a, a soldier who was recently killed, um, Latter-day Saint soldier, and he, he was a great patriot and he gave his life for his country. And I'm wondering where is, where is, when is this guy gonna speak the word of the Lord? Now, of course, at the time, I thought that the, the presidents of the church were meeting with the Lord every Thursday up in the upper room of the temple. I had no idea. I had never seen um, um, uh, Heber, Heber J. Clark, he, he'd written, a woman had asked him, a non-member woman had asked him uh, if he'd seen Christ. And he says, I don't know of anybody, any person who's seen Christ since Joseph Smith. Well, that was an eye opener. But that was, I learned that after. Also learned that Brigham Young claimed not to be a prophet. He says, I'm not a prophet like Joseph or Daniel. And he, he even said, look, my, my job is to keep the wolf out of the flocks. I'm, I'm here to do that until we can welcome Joseph's son and back. And of course, they didn't welcome him back. <laughs> they did everything they could because by then we had a hierarchy that was firmly entrenched. And uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph the Third, and his brother David had come to Utah, and the saints were flocking to hear them speak. And uh, that's when that's when all of a sudden these women who were married to the twelve began to claim that they had been married to Joseph Smith because Joseph Jr. or Joseph III and David were saying their father was not a polygamist. And suddenly these, these women were saying, well, he married me and he married me and he married me. So obviously they were set up to it, put up to it. But okay, so getting back to, uh, so Hinckley's talk, it's a big bull of nothing. And I'm thinking, holy cow, this, that was just, I just couldn't believe it because I expected the prophet to speak like a prophet. And he's basically saying, well, you know, we don't know what the future will bring. Well, what the hell? You're a prophet. You know, I don't know what the, we don't know what the, oh, and he said, I, I assume this will, uh, this will all be over in a matter of weeks. Well, he was wrong on that too. So that prompted me, I, th I thought, you know, I'll start a blog and I'll write about this issue. And I titled it Toby Keith and 
and the destruction of the Nephites. Toby Keith and the destruction of the Nephites. Uh, Toby Keith had a hit song at the time. Um, you know, it was basically one of the lyrics was, we'll put a boot, boot up your ass. It's the American way, you know. No, that's not the American way. So to go over to another country and kill civilians, oh, that's not the American way. Uh, we, we killed, I think, a million people, you know, between that and Afghanistan. Uh, anyway, so that was my anti-war screed. And uh, after that, the next one was, you know, I'd learned that the, that the doctor, that the uh, word of wisdom did not prohibit beer, but it prescribed beer. And I still didn't like the taste of it, still don't to this day. But, uh, but you know, there's, there's, a, there's a place there uh, for mild drinks. Oh, it mentions, mentions that barley is for mild drinks. Well, people have said, you know, seriously, leaders have tried to say, well, mild drink is a mild drink where they soak barley in water. No, it isn't. Mild um, barley is used for beer and was. We have evidence that Joseph Smith drank beer. He says so in his journal. He, uh, we have ads at ZSMI, stop by in the cafeteria and have a, have a beer. You know, this all ended when, uh, I want to say J. Reuben Clark. No, no. Who did I just mention? Oh, 1920s, right about is when they started. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> anyway, he was like a card-carrying member of the Temperance Union. Unit, uh, union. Um, I mean, not officially, but he was down on liquor. So this is why Utah, I think, was the last state to repeal prohibition because the church was against repealing it. This was an important thing. So. Um, so anyway, I spoke about that, and there's reason to believe that when the when the uh, um, word of wisdom mentions says hot drinks are not for the body, it's mm -hmm. referring not to coffee and tea. It's referring to whiskey and vodka and bourbon, hot drinks, drinks that are hot going down, as opposed to the mild drinks like exactly. wine and yeah. beer. I mean, I've 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 had liquor. Uh, I'm I'm not much of a liquor drinker, but I've had it in your throat and mouth burns going down when you drink it. So it, it, it would be hot. So I think that that's yeah. actually uh, a reasonable understanding of the word of wisdom. I think we could look at also how it's prescriptive when they talk about beer. Uh, we also have uh, Paul making it prescriptive for drinking wine for thine stomach's sake. So it mm. seems like it seems like those are more in line. Now, this is just me speaking as an outsider and all, folks mm -hmm. just so you know, you know, I speak to the full spectrum of the restoration. There are many of you who practice the word of wisdom, the temple recommend and all that, and I respect you. And I'm not here to criticize or knock. And I know some of the things that Rock is saying here, you might not like, but again, um, I, I talk to everybody and I wanna hear all the different viewpoints. But I also think sometimes when I do my own study, I can kind of see where uh, you could make the argument that beer and wine would be acceptable within the context of the word of wisdom. Sure. And I think there's an argument that could be made. And what I taught was in the first place, water was so bad that mostly that's what people drank. Yeah. Alcohol is, only became a problem later when people were drinking hard liquor as frequently as they were drinking beer. And uh, my, my impetus for, for this piece was, I came across a man, first name Sam, can't remember his last name. He was well known in the natural healing community. 
And he was telling people, you've got to get back to drinking beer at the end of the day. Your body needs that because what we what we have to have at the beginning of the day, we have to wake up and we got we got we, we need our, our nervous system on alert. Mm -hmm. But he says at the end of the day, you need to get that nervous system relaxed. So have a glass of beer, a pint of beer. You don't drink it all the time. You don't drink it for recreation, but you do it to calm down. So that was what I was talking about. And I was showing that Mormons did that too. And, uh, and, and I, I, I'll have to reread that. But I seem to recall that this verse says, and again, hot drinks are not for the body. And I'm thinking again, um, as, if, as if they had spoken about um, hard liquor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, because um, you, you can treat, what's the difference with hot, hot soup or hot yeah, chocolate? Yeah, it's because he hadn't drink. said he hadn't said it before. He hadn't said before, right. he hadn't said previously that coffee and tea are not for the body. This is the first time. Um, so we we interpret that I think wrongly. And I'm a big uh, maven of uh, of English language. I've got a set here of uh, uh, it's a four volume set on. Uh, the American language, and it usually picks up from, you know, back in pioneer days. And my public library has a five volume set called Regional English of the English Language. And I'm trying to find a, a definition of hot drinks yeah. um, to see, but apparently it was co commonly used in those days. Um, gosh, it hasn't occurred to me to check. Um, well, I don't know if, well, Webster's 1828 dictionary would have that. But the, see, the problem is you're looking at two words not just one word yeah, yeah, exactly. uh, and that's why it's hard to find yeah well it's very, it's very interesting so you you know you've obviously you said look i see that bookshelf behind you and you tell me you have a bunch of books in storage as well <laughs> so i one day i'm going to get out there and i'm going to look at your book collection because i love <laughs> books um but it's interesting folks because you know i think what's important is like i said the goal of this channel is to talk to interesting people original thinkers people kind of think outside of the box within the context of the restoration especially because uh, i just find it to be a fascinating world um that that fascinating ideas. I think Mormon doctrine is fascinating. I'm kind of like, I tell people, I'm kind of like a Book of Mormon Christian. Um, it, the Book of Mormon doesn't necessarily function. It does not function as scripture for me, but it doesn't bother me that it functions for scripture for you. Um, and that's how I see it. And so, okay, so let's just get back to this blog because I know obviously we, we kind of go off on these tangents, which is fine. I love- Can I say something about my book? My oh, please do, please do. I don't know. If I don't know if the titles are, are readable here. I, we had a friend from Canada, this before nobody could leave Canada. She came in here and she said, she looks, these are all over here. It's all about, I was big on the comic books in the silver age. So mm -hmm. I, I, I like the history of things. The history of golden age of Hollywood, history of comedy. Uh, most of these things were given to me, these comic book books were given to me. So, so it's been fun to reread the things that I liked, but there's a lot of history about this stuff, but um, there's nothing theological in this room at all. <laughs> she came in and she said, I thought you were a scholar. <laughs> all, it, all it is is fluff. Out in the living room, I've, one wall is lined with all the church and religious books and they're double they're double shelf they've got so many but uh now in here it's just fun time um you know i might have something this pile here behind me these are the things i'm kind of currently reading or pulled off the shop 
off the shelf. You can see right there on top of West Side Story, okay. Lux Edition. I got that at the thrift store for a couple of bucks. Yeah, sure. And, That's uh, cool. <laughs> yeah, well, my two favorite musicals are, are West Side Story and The Music Man. <laughs> so neither well, here nor I, there. So, um, you know, I, I guess um, you, you started this blog. And I'm going to get you back to telling the story about starting it and everything. Now, you gave me the reason why you started it, which is interesting. What, what made you settle on the, the name, finally, of pure Mormonism? You know what? My, my wife thought that was terribly um, presumptuous. Because, you know, <laughs> here I am going to write about pure Mormonism. Well, it turns out that that's, that was inspired uh, because I didn't know how corrupt Mormonism had become. Um, I mean, basically what I'm writing about is I've, I've said that this blog is my way of repenting and I'm repenting of the, of the false beliefs that I've held and uh, in a large measure, most of them are, are about that sort of thing. And I, I as I mentioned, uh, I don't remember if I mentioned this to you or not, but I, I wrote a piece when, when President Nelson was um, installed as the president of the church. I've never seen a, a, a better record. I mean, he told about the process and uh, some apostles spoke about what, how it happened. And they all talked about how this is, this is a, a method of choosing the next president that the Lord has laid out. And yet they never tell us what that method is. And, and uh, no, it's not because the Lord did lay out a specific way to choose his prophet. And it isn't by the 12 apostles um, getting together and agreeing, yeah, this is the way we've always done it. Um, so I, I really recommend this piece. It's called Who Died and Made Him President? Because it, it walks you through, this proves that, you know, God is not God's servant. God didn't choose him. God didn't anoint him, appoint him, or set him apart. It's a complete fraud. And this is what <laughs> what got me started on this uh, when I when I brought up the fact that he uh, he's telling members they should be vaccinated because it's proven false and effective, proven proven uh, safe and effective, safe and effective. Yeah, I mean that's an outright lie. And he's a doctor, and he should know, and he knows how to read the studies. I I. I frequently have bronchitis and I've come down with pneumonia time or two and had to been hospitalized the last time. And so I'm concerned about these kinds of illnesses. So the first thing I did was I pulled up the studies to find out how serious it is because I don't want to get pneumonia. If I get pneumonia, I'm probably doomed if, if what they were saying about this was true. Turns out the, the, uh, the studies and even Fauci is a, a, a signator of one of these. Uh, I think this was from the New England Journal of Medicine. He says, what we're probably looking at is a very severe um, strain of the flu. And he, he had his name in addition with three or four others. And everything you read, you know, oh, I, I love this uh, one from the New England Journal of Medicine, where they say, we know that masks are not effective in blocking the coronavirus. And they went on to talk about why people in the medical industry, some people in the medical industry, this is May 21st, 2020. If anybody wants to look it up, it's the New England Journal of Medicine. They went on to say why it is that some nurses and some medical staff want to wear them anyway. And they say, well, it's kind of like they say it would be preferable if people went by the data and the evidence. But, you know, some people 
want, they use the mask as a talisman. Now a talisman is what? A good luck charm to ward away evil. So we, so this is, there are 92 citations and, and footnotes in this piece. They're telling you that masks don't work and those people who are wearing masks are just doing it because, oh, it's, you know, it's like they're, wearing, they're, they're carrying a lucky rabbit's foot. Total nonsense. Of course, now they finally admitted that. And they're, uh, they're, they're, I, we're, seeing, we're seeing them back off of a lot of the things of the lockdowns everywhere except Trudeau in Canada. But most nations are backing off from this stuff, <coughs> including American politicians, because they can see the writing on the wall now. They're going to get wiped out in the next election if they don't make it look like. And, uh, you know, the director of the CDC said the science has changed. Science never changed. I've been reading the science. The science has always said this wasn't serious. It wasn't going to be contagious. And if you if you got these vaccines, most likely it wouldn't make any difference. You'd still transmit, still get sick. All right, I've run off on a tangent again. Yes, but, you did. Uh, and, and just so you know, folks, uh, I don't normally get into politics on this program. I try to keep it nonpartisan, but I did reference this. I just want people to know that I personally did get vaccinated. And I, I do wear a mask when I go out in public. I, I know you gave me the sign of the cross and everything, but but, uh, but I just want to let people know that that's that's I did I did research as well and and came to different conclusions. Uh, but uh, I just want to put that in there. Uh, okay, I, and yeah, I, I'm fine. Yeah. I have no problem with anybody wanting to, you know, wanting to wear whatever they want to and do yeah. whatever they want. But so, yeah, uh, you're you're more of a live and let live kind of guy, yeah. uh, kind of a libertarian. Yeah. I, I I spent several. Uh, a handful of blog posts discussing this topic and mm -hmm. and uh one of my one of my more faithful readers said i you know i liked it better when you were talking about the church well you know this is the real when you're talking about religion this is religion this is this uh, you know coming the, what the book of mormon what's the book of, well you know you may have seen this yourself being evangelical but i saw a uh I saw something years ago that showed that 79% of the Bible is deals with government and only 31% deals with religion. And uh, I thought that was interesting. I think the Book of Mormon, probably those, those, uh, those percentages are higher because the Book of Mormon warns against, constantly warning against our loss of freedoms. So anyway, that's where I'll leave that. Okay, well, let's just kind of talk a little bit now. Um, let's talk about Jesus. Um, and we, we mentioned to him earlier, I, um, of course, um, as a young child, um, became a born-again Christian, asked uh, Jesus into my heart around, I was around the age of five. And then as I was in high school, I got baptized in Living Waters in the Manatee River here in Florida. And, uh, and then I have also received the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, with evidence of tongues as well. And um, so I just want to ask you, based on what I just described to you, would you say that I am a brother in Christ in your worldview? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, by the way, and I'll just interject this, I would read something in the Book of Mormon, uh, like uh, um, Ammon among the Lamanites, where it's like a Pentecostal meeting. It's yep. like holy rollers. And then um, a Mosiah, uh, all the people, come to Christ at once. And then I go to church and I'd be told we don't believe that stuff. You know, uh, we don't believe that, you know, you go up to the altar and you're saved. Uh, yeah, I would agree that that's not all you need to do. 
but my goodness, that's the first step. And to, and to discount that, you know, which we did as Mormons, we just saw these people, they go up in the, in the, uh, you know, can you imagine, have you been in LDS meetings? Yes. Steve? Yeah. Okay. So uh, I can't imagine, um, somebody in fast and testimony standing up and shouting hallelujah, uh, we'd be embarrassed for them because we just don't do that. And yet that's what we should be doing. Oh, let me tell you about something that Hinckley did. Okay, so there was, I guess it was, uh, I think it was centered around the uh, building of the, uh, the, the, they rebuilt the Nauvoo Temple. And so in general conference, uh, President Hinckley says, we're gonna give the Hosanna shout. And everybody in the congregation had been handed a handkerchief and everybody at home was encouraged to get a handkerchief and join in. And he says, so this is how you do it. So we're going to say Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Lord. And so he says, okay, are you ready? And he's at the pulpit and the whole congregation goes, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Lord. And there's no enthusiasm. There's no, this is a Hosanna shout. That's what it's called. And he was going to bring that back. But he couldn't even give the damn thing properly. And the congregation is just following the instructions. Hosanna, Hosanna. It was the, it was, it was the way Mormons approached just about anything without any enthusiasm. We should have been standing and shouting hallelujah. But Mormons don't do that. And so Mormons don't bear, bear testimony. This is interesting to me, is that, you know, the Book of Mormon, uh, my friend Christopher Thomas wrote the Book of Pentecostal Reads the Book of Mormon and finds that the, the, Pente that the Book of Mormon is a thoroughly Pentecostal book in, and it and it's predates the Azusa Street revivals in 1906, which has led to this explosive growth in the charismatic and Pentecostal movement throughout the world. Um, within a few decades, the charismatics and Pentecostals will outnumber Islam in members. And that's how big it is. And it started in 1906. So it's a remarkable story. But um, you have this book that's very Pentecostal. And I tell people, and you have this church, April 6th, 1830. And I tell people, I say, if I'm in that room, I'm amongst fellow born-again, spirit-filled Christians. And I made the comment to Dan Vogel. I said, and some of those people would be spirit-filled. And Dan Vogel went to me said, no, they're all spirit-filled. I imagine there might have been a, de a deist or, a, or a, a Unitarian, you know, in there too, maybe with those <laughs> ideas. But generally speaking, April 6, 1830 is a room that I would have felt very comfortable in. And I was mm, telling people, yeah. it's very fascinating how, like we talk about early Christianity was a Jewish movement. And I say, early Mormonism was a born-again movement. And I, I, I think that um, one of the things that really struck me is I, I, I frequently attend um, the Church of Jesus Christ, which is uh, some would know as the Burkerton organization. They're based in Monagahilla, Pennsylvania. And essentially, and, and, and they understand when I say this, I'm saying it lovingly, but I call them like the Pentecostal Mormons. And I also call them, an, they also refer to themselves as the Church of Alma. And I also say they're the April 6, 1830 church. So if you want to go into that room in April 6th, I would suggest that you go visit that church. Now, you know, of course, I'm not trying to say they're the one true church because I'm, I'm not playing that game. You know, I, I just, but I want to say, if you want to experience something very different, but also as an evangelical, as a charismatic, it's also very familiar. Um, just speak to that. Yeah. Um, boy, I'll tell you. Yeah, I agree with you thoroughly. I think in the, in Joseph's day, um, uh, there was enthusiasm, you know, 
which is why people would flock to Nauvoo and they would be baptized and they wouldn't have to be interviewed to see if, if they uh, supported Joseph Smith. It didn't matter. They were there because Christ had touched their hearts. Um, uh, thought slipped my mind. Uh, Want to re-ask the question? Maybe it'll come back. Well, no, just basically that, you know, early on in the church, it was very charismatic, Pentecostal. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Oh, I, I'll tell you my theory about that. Most of the people who uh, went to Utah, now, by the way, only half of them, it was estimated, I've seen, I've seen a, a, a statement that 200,000 people were members of the church at the time of Joseph Smith. I think that's a, a I think that's an error. I think it was 20,000 from what I can learn. And only 10,000 of them went to Utah. <clears throat> and most of these people were from staid New England stock. They were not Southern Baptist shout hallelujah types. They were, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a, uh, of a denomination. They would sing like this when they're having a, sing this hymn. They didn't have somebody leading the congregation. They would count the beat as they're singing it. Uh, oh, you can see this uh, in a movie, uh, Cold Mountain, mm -hmm. Cold Mountain. Um, but so these people were not the kind of people who were, you know, apt to wear their hearts on their sleeves. They were, you know, and, and Brigham was from uh, New England. So this is where a lot of these people were from. And, and Brigham, you know, if you take your cues from your leaders. If your leaders aren't out there shouting hallelujah and talking fire and broomstone. This is why our, you know, in general conference, all the speakers sound the same. It's just something they've picked up, this cadence, that uh, this slow, boring way of speaking. Um, uh, you know, Bruce R. McConkie, he was at least a little stentorian, but he had a boring way of, of speaking loudly. <laughs> so um, I don't think I've answered your question yet. Well, no, I mean, you, well, you were talking about how, um, so the people who, in, in your in your mind, this is kind of how the narrative that you're putting together is that the, the people who would be more apt to be more interested in maybe the spontaneity of the spirit and stuff like that would have been perhaps weren't the ones that would have gone to Utah. Yeah. Um, oh, and, and another thing, another thing is that most of us are trained that you're, that, uh, that you know, we hear about the, uh, more the the baptism of fire but mm -hmm. we're told we were told by uh oh gosh anyway i can't remember his name he was an apostle um that your testimony comes incrementally the still small voice little by little until you have a test so this is where i was by the time i was on my mission i had never had that baptism of fire i got my baptism of fire in 2007 it was amazing because i had been reading about it. i'd been reading about these things we're talking about how these people all at once they're just they're feeling it uh and and yet never saw that in church and in testimony meeting basically people say i know the church is true i know that president nelson is a prophet Christ might come into it, but a lot of people will bear their testimony without even mentioning Jesus. But none of them talk about this born again moment. So I had mine, the baptism of fire, which is doctrinal. We're supposed to have the baptism of fire. But since our leaders have never had it, they tell us that, well, it doesn't happen like that. It happens little by little until one day you wake up and you have a testimony. So 
I'm reading these things in the Book of Mormon, and I've been pondering it for days and thinking, I'd like to get that baptismal fire. You know, I wonder, wonder what it's going to take. And I'd been praying for it. And, uh, and then one day, I'm, we're in, my, Connie and I had gone to Utah, and we're visiting our son and his wife in their house. And nobody was home but me. And I, uh, I was in the living room, and I stuck a cushion underneath my head. And I thought I'd just sit here and lay there and think about this a little bit more. And whoosh! It was, hmm. I can never describe this without, without weeping and losing it. I, well, the love, and you know, you hear the Joseph Smith when he was told, your sins are forgiven you. And when Jesus was healing people, he'd say, their sins are forgiven you. It occurred to me that that wasn't happening at that time, necessarily. It's not... Lord puts his hand on you and says, your sins are now forgiven you. I was told your sins have always been forgiven you. In other words, I'm not saying that we're, we're allowed to just keep going. What I'm saying is that as I've repented of things and never sure if the repentance took, the Lord is telling me, yes, I expect this. I expect you to falter. I expect these things to happen. And did you learn something? Yeah. Well, then, okay. Get up. Step back. I've, I've, uh, I've uh, compared this to walking along on the edge of a curb and you step off the curb. What do you do? You get back up on the curb. Keep walking. You don't have to. We don't have to beat ourselves up. Uh, God doesn't want us to beat ourselves up for things that he understands are the normal foibles of human nature as we traverse this travail. Now, if we keep making the same mistakes, that's another thing, because that means we haven't really repented. But for heaven's sake, um, anyway, this baptism of fire, I was enveloped in love and I, I've heard other people describe it like that. I've heard other people describe it as being taken up, you know, so people have their, their own method, but this was like, wow, God is real and God loves me. And he's not my enemy and he's not somebody to be afraid of. He's not the guy I have to worry about when I come before him at the end of my life, to have my accounting, you know, as long as I'm continuing to do my best. So again, this uh, this blog, I realized. Oh, you asked me about the name, Pure Mormonism. So I, I, I thought first I thought that was presumptuous, and Connie didn't think it was a good idea because it does sound presumptuous. But turns out that that's what I'm teaching. I'm teaching Pure Mormonism, shedding off all the dross and the goo that doesn't matter. Oh, by the way, I got to tell you something. Um, it's a great book I want to recommend. Uh, have you have you interviewed Charles Harrell? Maybe you maybe oh, you know. I know the name. I know the name. Okay, his book is called "This Is My Doctrine: The Development yes. of Mormon Theology." Mm -hmm. um, but last night I found another book that's called "Obscure Mormonism," "Obscure Mormon Doctrine," and it was just published last year by a guy named Chris Jensen. Yeah, I actually uh, had him on. Oh, I did you? Good. Yep. Oh, good. I'm gonna I'm gonna look that one up yep. because. Uh, here. Yeah. Here. Oh, good. Yeah, I'm gonna have I to. I discovered him. I discovered him. Oh. I, basically, he was. Uh, I was. I was one of the kind of first person to give him a platform. 
Well, that's great. Well, yeah, that's, anyway, it looks good. I've, I, I pulled up the uh, Kindle sample. I don't buy books much anymore, but I'll look at the Kindle sample and get an idea what it is. I'm not allowed to buy books anymore. Uh, my wife put down, <laughs> laid down the law years ago. But, uh, you know, every now and then I'll pull something from a thrift store or something that I couldn't resist. But, and, uh, and the local library gave me a 10-volume set of uh, um, Encyclopedia of Popular Music because uh, I'm a big buff on. I, I like all the old music going back from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. I was big in the big band era. I like rockabilly, skiffle, all that stuff. Uh, so anyway, so this is like a treasure because they were going to get rid of it. So <clears throat> I asked if I could have it because nobody was... <clears throat> apparently it was on the reference shelf and nobody was ever using it i don't know how they can tell i'm i'm hoping that they'll decide to get rid of a uh, dictionary of regional english because i can buy that but it's like four or five hundred dollars for the set so i can't buy it but anyway what was i saying oh yeah so <clears throat> i don't buy books and besides i just turned 70 i've got so many books that i want to get through i don't read fiction anymore aside from the occasional mark twain or Edgar Rice Burroughs, and I haven't read Burroughs in many years. Those were my two my two fiction <coughs> authors. But there's so much to learn yet. And I, here's the funny thing. I don't want to die yet because I have all these books to read. <clears throat> At the same time, I realize that once I die, number one, most of these things won't matter. And number two, I'll probably be able to ingest everything that's in them anyway. Yeah. And... Uh, so just so, we, we we were talking about you would we we're talking about the book this is my doctrine and obscure ah, mormon doctrine just go back yes. to that yeah oh, okay yeah it's, it, that looks like a good book it's only I, I just discovered it last night like i said but it looks good but what's oh yeah what triggered that thought was this um so he he'll show you all the sources he's going to use he's going to use all the scriptures he's going to use the uh, as his sources, uh, if uh, if a general authority said something, if it was published in the Ensign or whatever, and this is a so this is an excellent way of seeing. Oh, for example, one of the things that he uh, he, he quoted, <clears throat> he said, uh, "This is on Adam and Eve," and so that's the first the first uh, topic is Adam and Eve, and there's a quote that Adam and Eve uh, or uh, Eve was not actually made from from adam's rib but that was that's a figurative now i'm open to that i've always thought that was probably figurative but the source is uh is spencer kimball where did he get it you know it's not doctrinal is what i'm saying unless you can trace it to the scriptures and again i take you back to harold b lee who said if only the members would learn to get their information from the scriptures it's all in there tell you a story and I wrote about this <clears throat> I'm uh when I went on my mission we're in the mission training center this is in Salt Lake City at the time not in Provo and we uh they took us through we're going to get to we're going to get to go through the temple we've all been through the temple of course we're going to do a temple ceremony then we're going to get to meet in person with the prophet well this is Harold B. Lee and we can ask him any question we want to ask him and I thought this is going to be powerful this is going to be amazing. We're going to hear what a prophet has to say, you know. So I didn't have a question for him, but a lot of the other guys did. And every time, so he stood there and he's got a, he's got a set, of, set of sticks and they're white too. He's in a white suit and scriptures are white. And every question, he said, oh, that's in Third uh, Nephi 22. And he just whips and he reads the answer. And I'm waiting for him to speak like a prophet. 
I don't want him to read the scriptures. I'm in the presence of a prophet. I want something amazing. I want something nobody's ever heard before. And what does he do? He just reads to us from the same old crap, you know, which at the time <laughs> might have been a way I would put it. Um, it's all in there. And yet now we have now we have the president of the church telling the members in an official statement. This is a first presidency statement, which becomes doctrine of the church. It's not doctrinal, but doctrine to the church. And he's telling people a flat out lie. And he's encouraging people to do something that could be harmful to them. It's harmful to a lot of people because it's not safe. It's not effective and it hasn't been proven. So anyway, so I go back to Harold B. Lee and that, that statement. Um, I, I quote that, by the way, if anybody wants to see it. And I tell that story. The piece I wrote is called Evil Speaking of the Lord's Anointed. And there's another one I want to point out, which is misquoting God, because you brought up uh, how, you know, uh, members uh, believe that they're members of the true church. That's not what God was saying at all. And this was a guest post by uh, um, McKay. Uh, I can't remember his last name. Awful. Oh, anyway, he's a good friend, but he shows how the, by the use of, through the use of the English language that anybody in other countries would understand that the Lord never said that this is the true church. He was saying it has the, it has the potential of becoming, but he'd already told the members and he told them a little bit later that they were under condemnation. He'd already told them they were in a condemnation. And a little bit later than that, he tells them of the curses that they're going to experience among those curses being put out of your place, losing everything, and of course that happened. They ended up having to, you know, the, the half of them that went to the Rocky Mountains, that's half of the others had to leave Nauvoo. They scattered around Iowa and uh, Nebraska, Pennsylvania, uh, other parts of Missouri, <clears throat> but they had to get out of Nauvoo. They were all scattered from their place. And yet we're saying at the same time, the Lord says, this is the true church. But the funny thing is, now I lived in Utah for about 10 years. And the funny thing is, uh, you know, anybody who lives there can tell you that the big holiday is Pioneer Day on July 24th. And that's when they celebrate the fact that the Lord brought them to this choice land safely. No, he didn't. They were dying along the way. He was shut of them right at that point. They were on their own, but they like to believe their myths. So, and again, speaking of myths, this is, I'm a myth buster in this blog. And uh, I can show, I, I can document uh, how they're wrong. Anyway, so Charles Harrell, a great book. He talks about uh, baptism. Uh, well, I wrote about baptism and he shows, uh, he's, uh, this was a, an academic book. Whereas, uh, so it's, you know, it, some people don't like to read scholarly works, but he walks us through what baptism meant from the time of Jesus. And it didn't mean that you were joining a church. That's what we say today. You know, we will use those terms interchangeably. Uh, so-and-so joined the church, so-and-so was baptized, means the same thing. <clears throat> when, when a person was baptized, what they were doing was they were fulfilling a covenant, they're making covenant with the Lord. But what we've done is we've conflated those two things so that now uh, you read the Book of Mormon, you get a testimony of the Book of Mormon, you're expected to become a Mormon. You're expected to join the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And you and I were talking the other day about uh, Lynn Rittenhauer, 
who is a Baptist preacher, and a lot of people don't know about him, Baptist preacher who preaches the Book of Mormon. He's got a wonderful thing, a wonderful video, <clears throat> I think is a good introduction. It's called the Book of Mormon. Uh, um, what is it called? How to share the, <laughs> the book. How to share the book with a Baptist is that's not the one I'm book. thinking of, but he's got many of them. Okay. Uh, and basically, he preaches the Book of Mormon from his uh, Baptist pulpit. He has guest speakers come in, and this is what I like about the Baptist Church. I think they don't have a top-down. Right. Um, yeah, so you can you can form a Baptist church, and you don't have to answer to the Missouri Synod of the of the. Methodist, and you certainly don't have to answer to Salt Lake City. Your church is your church, and if you want to preach the Book of Mormon, one of the things that Rittenhauer, uh, again, if anybody wants to look him up, the name Lynn Rittenhauer, L-Y-N-N, Rittenhauer, the Book of Mormon, a, a Baptist mm -hmm. document, something oh, like yeah, that. Yeah. More, more, more Baptist than the Baptist hymnal. Yeah, and he points out that the, the name Jesus Christ appears mo many more times in the Book of Mormon than it does in the in in the Bible, mm -hmm. and he's right. But you know, uh, anyway, I, I I I got a hold of him, and he told me he's he's put out about sixty videos on this topic. That was a few years ago, so I don't know why I haven't blogged about him yet I he was an interesting guy and actually um last fall i spoke at the book of mormon rally in independence uh, independence missouri and the representatives from all the major branches of the restoration mm. were there and lynn i spoke and then lynn reidenhauer was also one of the speakers there and so oh, cool. him and i uh, uh, he's been aware of me for a while we have interacted with each other i eventually would like to have him on the show i think he's a very interesting person oh he'd be great yeah and so yeah. we could chat sometime. Now, I just wanted to... Uh, Let me ask you this first. Is your yeah, speech sure. available on video? Uh, no, I unfortunately. I mean, they were, somebody uh -huh. was filming it because I asked, is this going to be streamed anywhere? I, I, I'll, you know, I'm going to talk to Patrick McKay. He's with the Independent Restoration Branch. So I'll see if... Great. I'd love to see it. Love so, to see it, it, too. Yeah, it was, yeah it, was, it, was, it was fun. It was very interesting. We had a Catholic, uh, old Catholic priest, not regular Roman Catholic, and then a Southern Baptist had me and representatives of just about every branch, including a professor. Oh, that would have been great. I'd love to see that conference. Yeah, Casey Griffiths, a professor from BYU, also spoke. He was the the, the mission president was there. Uh, was the big wigs with the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, but also, you know, uh, RLDS and Community of Christ and Church of Jesus Christ were all there. It was really kind of a cool thing. Something is going on, folks. Let's just say that something's going. Yeah. On. Well, this movement that I'm involved in is open to anyone. Um, yeah. That's what Denver. I wanted to talk about br briefly here, because um, okay. you, of course, have mentioned Denver Snuffer's name, and I had asked you a specific question a little earlier about how I was born again, baptized in living waters, and received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Would Denver Snuffer or that organization feel it necessary? If I wanted to, and I'm not joining any groups, but if I wanted to join that group, would they feel it'd be necessary that I'd be rebaptized? Oh, no, 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 no. Interesting. Um, this isn't, first off, let me, let me. And it's not an organization. It's, misconceptions. Kind of it's not an organization. And Denver is not the leader. Right. We are, uh, we are a group of fellowships, basically, uh, you know, wherever geographical area you live in. Uh, for example, I'm up here in Sandpoint, Idaho. There's a handful of families. We just met on uh, Sunday. And uh, <clears throat> We have the sacrament, we have a potluck dinner. We don't meet every Sunday, especially not in the winter. We Right now we're meeting once a month because it's just hard to get, get around up there. Um, but uh, basically this is a 
great place to land if you're a disaffected Mormon and you, and you don't want to leave, you know, you know, like me, I'm a believer. Why would I leave the religion? Well, you don't have to leave the religion. There are tens of thousands of people like us. There are a lot of ex-Mormons who have said goodbye to all of it. Yes. But then there are a whole lot of us. I've, I've been confused. My, my own cousin called me up <clears throat> two or three years ago. And she said, Alan, you need to get back into the church. I said, well, you know, they excommunicated me. Well, you need to go back. I said, well, I, I tried to attend the local uh, local uh, congregation here, but I was made to understand that I wasn't really welcome by the bishop. So <clears throat> she didn't know that I was a believer. She thought that I was one of these people, these ex-Mormons who stopped believing and was turned against the church. No, I said, I, you know, when I started talking about the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith, she was dead silent because down there in St. George, where she and some of my other relatives all live, obviously they've been having a conversation about me and uh, all they known was that I'd left the church. But it's funny how, you know, I have this blog, people can, uh, can look me up and they can see, but I, every now and then I have, to, I have to point out that I am a believer. Uh, otherwise, people think I'm just ragging on leadership, which is one of my favorite topics, because this is a fraud. This is a fraud, and these are imposters, and they are misleading people because they're teaching false doctrine and they're guiding people. Like I said, my goodness, um, gosh, I can't keep forgetting the name of this guy. He, he died not long ago, maybe three years ago. Okay. Um, if, if I can remember their middle initial, I can always remember them, I guess. Anyway, but he, he said, uh, keep your eyes riveted on the leaders of the church. We cannot, we will not lead you astray. Well, they're leading us astray all the time. They're leading us astray, you know, just, just telling people, telling all the members that you should take uh, an injection. <clears throat> that is already proven to be harmful to some people. Now, of course, it's not harmful to everybody, but you don't, you can't take a, 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 something that has not been approved, not been tested. I mean, I understand all the, all the, uh, the, the, the dog, no, the, the rats, the mice they tested this on, they all died. Um, anyway, you can't, you can't have a position of, of, of authority where people believe and hang on your every word because you've told them to hang on your every word. You can't do that and you can't, you can't tell people you, you really ought to do that. And it turns out the uh, church with their $120 billion of dollars is, is invested to the tune of half a billion in those three uh, companies, Johnson, Johnson, Moderna, and Pfizer. So, so just... Uh, um... I just, you know, obviously you have an affiliation with Denver Snuffer. I guess, uh, and I've actually been in contact with Denver at some point, he's going to be coming on. Again, I'm talking to everybody. Um, I just am curious, what kind of person is Denver Snuffer? Oh, he's, he's just down to earth. He's not, uh, the one thing he doesn't, one time he said, anybody who calls themselves a Snufferite, I have no respect for. He is a guy, you know, B.H. Roberts, uh, defined the role of a prophet. And I think it's apt. A prophet's role is as a teacher. And that's what Denver does. He shares. Denver likes the Beatles. I took a car ride with him uh, on the trip up. They come from Bountiful all the way up here. And the whole way, he's listening to side two of the Abbey Road album. <laughs> Driving Stephanie nuts. Um, he, he rides a Harley. He's just a, a decent guy, you know. 
Uh, he's a convert, but the, what sets him apart is he was a gospel doctrine teacher for 25 years. And uh, he was really interested in the gospel and he would delve deep. He would, he would, uh, you know, whatever the lesson was today, the, the leaders have come out with an official pronouncement that don't look outside the, the lesson manual. You know, I was telling the teachers, don't look outside the lesson manual. There's no reason. So I was, when I was teaching, I like to, I, I would sit at the coffee table in the living room getting prepared. I have Strong's Concordance over here and the scriptures open and several other books, <coughs> including Bible commentaries, which are extremely valuable. Um, Anyway, so that's Denver. So for 25 years, he was doing that. He would spend about eight to 10 hours uh, preparing for a lesson that, uh, and then uh, he was so popular that um, people started, you know, saying, can we just come to your house? And, and so that snowballed into a thing where people, you know, people would come regularly to hear him talk about stuff. He has written several books and one of them is, the title is 18 Verses. This gives you an idea of how knowledgeable this guy is. He takes 18 verses. It's a book of maybe 250 pages, 18 verses and he extrapolates the meaning. Uh, he, he delves deep into these different verses. And uh, I mean, think about do one book on just 18 book verses from the Book of Mormon. It's amazing because there's so much to say and there's so much knowledge out there. And of course, he is well aware of the historical um, knowledge. He he's a, he spoke on, uh, he gave a series of talks on the Re Reformation, on the 500 year anniversary mm -hmm. of the Reformation. Yeah. And he knows all these guys. And uh, you know, all the ref reformers. And my wife was asking me, have you ever heard of Zwingli? I said, yeah, because I, I used to subscribe to the Bible. Was it the Bible review? I subscribed to a lot of yeah. um, Christian magazines. Yeah. yeah and, and they, every month they devoted it to a certain ref reformationist. So, so when Denver was talking about Zwingli, I knew who he was talking about, the Swiss yeah. guy. Um, but he knows everything. I think I'd say he's the most knowledgeable human being on the face of the earth, but humble. And he's just a regular guy and he doesn't want any followers and he will kick your butt. If you, if you try to follow him or ask him, you know, what should I do now? Look at the script. Well, so what does he teach? He teaches from the scriptures. He teaches what the, he, he takes that. And Joseph Smith said something uh, very similar. Joseph Smith said, if anybody teaches you anything uh, contrary to the, the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, set that man up as an apostate, as an apost imposter, because that's what he is. So, you know, this is not a movement where, and Mormons can't get this, can't, a lot of Mormons can't, they can't get this. They think if there is a movement outside the church, that there is a prophet, that you've chosen a prophet to follow and that you are, now you have a leader, you know. Denver is not our leader. He teaches and we, you know, I like, to, we, we can tune in when he talks uh, or not. And this is why I like that, uh, the religion of the fathers, that YouTube video. It, it's amazing what the guy knew about uh, the Egyptian language. 
and uh, and other things and the and the uh, you know one of the things that I thought was interesting I learned uh, you know we got this uh, we got these facsimiles in the Doctrine and Covenants and there's a picture of a, a priest holding a knife or something and it turns out that that uh, that's from the Book of the Dead and uh, and that drawing does not apparently describe what's in but we're all raised to believe that well turn and and because this guy's got a human head uh, in the actual documents it's a it's a hound's head and other things like that well the actual the the fragment that this that this was and i can't remember he was a swedish member he decided he was going to draw that and he was going to put the heads on and, and you know fill mm -hmm. in the blanks where things are and so what happens everybody thinks joseph smith drew those pictures and uh <laughs> and he didn't i think it happened after joseph smith was gone hmm. uh interesting stuff well uh you know i just want to you know this has uh, been really kind of cool dude to have this conversation with you <laughs> um you know we, we went off on tangents but i told you before you know let's just chat stream of consciousness and we did um and i do appreciate you taking the time to uh come on to the program today. oh it's my pleasure nobody's wanted to talk to me for a long time well, and and you know, of course, you've been on Mormon stories, and you've you've talked you've talked to people in the past, and and uh, of course, you know, part of the point of this program is to um, document um, the restoration and talk to people that have whether you agree or disagree with them, uh, but are are a voice, are a perspective within the context of the restoration. And so, for me, as an outsider, I like I said, I don't have a dog in this fight, which means I'm just going to talk to everybody without prejudice, which I think is really important. And, you know, your blog uh, throughout the years, you know, I just every once in a while I'll just hop on and say, oh, I wonder what Rock's uh, saying now, you know, type kind of thing and just read <laughs> some of your stuff. And then um, and, and of course, I, I on some of the subreddits uh, like ExMormon and other places, I people would reference your stuff as well. So I just kind of grew familiar with you. And then I watched your interview, of course, with Sean McCraney on uh, Mormon Stories as I well. I enjoyed that one. And uh, yeah, that was and then Sean um, at some point is going to be coming on my program as well. And so I just think it's important to hear your voice, Rock. And I appreciate you telling your story and coming on. Um, just real quick, do you have any final words you'd like to impart to my audience? Yeah, you know, I'd like to put in a plug for uh, a friend of mine who is a new blogger. He's only been at it for a few months and he's prolific. His latest piece is called The, the Constitution of No Authority. And one of the problems I've had, I don't know if I'd call it a problem, but one of the questions I've had is the Lord in the Doctrine and Covenants gives a revelation which he endorses the con constitution and it seems to be like you know well most of us took it to believe that this is you know holy writ written in stone and there are problems with it i i've become in later years an anti-federalist i would have sided with uh with patrick henry and uh samuel um samuel wasn't Samuel Adams. Samuel Adams, thank oh. you, the beer guy, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and these others, because they were very reluctant. And here's the thing. These are the guys who insisted that a Bill of Rights be put in there before yeah. they would, before it was ratified. And everybody said, it doesn't need a Bill of Rights. Everybody knows what the rights are. Well, you know, today, almost every, every con, uh, controversy before the Supreme Court has to, you know, has to be uh, resolved by the Bill of Rights. It's, it's absolutely necessary. We we wouldn't have lasted this long without a Bill of Rights. And 
we should have had a lot more. There were uh, something in the neighborhood of 200 odd um, rights that, that they wanted to enumerate. And eventually they were whittled down to 10 because the framers kind of figured out, you know, that kind of encompassed everything, especially in the ninth and the 10th, and they did. But, well, I'm telling you, um, um, What's the name it's of that good blog? To, what? What's the name of your friend's blog? Oh, the name of the blog is Book of Mormon Perspectives. And the only way to get to that is you got to type in the www, then bomperspectives.com. Okay. Because so, if you, yeah, if so you type in Book of Mormon Perspectives, or if you type, if you leave off the, the www, you'll end up in limbo somewhere. So okay. it's www bomperspectives.com. Of course, now every Monday I participate in the Book of Mormon Perspectives Forum, which is put on by <laughs> uh, Paul DeBarth of the uh, Community of Christ. And it's a great group that I've been involved with for, well, I guess it's been almost a year now. I just want to well, plug that must my have buddies. Been... Oh, yeah. Plug, plug my buddies at the Outer Brightness Podcast for sending me this cool uh, mug. I just want to uh, mention to any uh, 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 podcasters or YouTubers that have some swag, uh, if you want to send it to me, uh, whether it's a shirt, a hat, or a mug, uh, you know, I'm going to give you some props and uh, everything. And hey, if you got any stuff too, I want you to send me stuff too, dude. I don't have anything. You know, <laughs> I don't have no, t-shirts no or anything. No oh, the, the, by the way, the, the other thing I wanted to say about yeah. Book of Mormon Perspectives is this is the stuff I would be writing if I was smarter. I mean, this is got good it. stuff. All right. Well, that's an interesting form to check out. And, you know, like I said, just read whatever people have to say, and then you make up your own mind and you decide what you want to do with it. But it's just good to get all the facts out there, all the information. Now, yeah. there's things that, you know, Rock said today that a lot of people are going to be very fine to disagree with greatly. Some of it would be some of your doctrinal stuff. Some of it might be some of your vaccination stuff. Again, this is a place where these voices are going to be heard. And, uh, and, and I want to thank you, Rock, for coming on. Well, and I want to thank you. And I'm really glad, glad I like your even-handed take on things because, yeah, you're going to get guests on like me who have a specific point of view, but what's wrong with hearing it? You know, right. nobody has to agree with me. Um, That's right. Exactly. So but, uh, thanks. Thanks for this. I, I was, I'm, it's been a pleasure getting to know you. Yeah, this has been fun. And, and I knew you'd make a, a great guest and a great interview. And so I just want to remind my audience to uh, make sure you can support me on Patreon. For those of you who want to financially support, just go to Patreon, Mormon Book Reviews. I'll try to remember to leave a link. Um, you can reach me at mormonbookreviews at gmail.com. Uh, just a reminder that our format is, uh, our podcast is being, we're are slowly but surely getting everything updated. And we are available on Apple, Google, and other uh, fine podcast formats as well. And we will be expanding. And I just want to remind my audience to like and subscribe. And don't forget to hit to the uh, notification button to be informed when a new episode comes out. You all have yourself a great day.